Hello, and welcome to the Blue Earth Podcast, a show focused on discussing our oceans and how to care for them. My name is John Sherbert. I'm the producer for the show, and I want to talk to you for a second about who we are and tell you how to get a hold of us. The Blue Earth Podcast is brought to you by Future Frogmen, a not-for-profit organization focused on fostering ocean ambassadors and future leaders. We are a diverse, interdisciplinary team of devoted students, educators, activists, scientists, artists, and business professionals who work to keep our Earth, well, blue. We welcome involvement from anybody interested in making Earth's water environment safer, cleaner, and better than ever. If you like the show, please subscribe, rate, and review. If you want to see more Future Frogmen content, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, and LinkedIn at Future Frogmen. And our website, futurefrogmen.org, where you can subscribe to hear about upcoming podcasts. Right now, we're gearing up for a weekly show where we'll converse with guests about a variety of topics all related to the oceans. Until we're fully up and running, we're repurposing our video conversation series to showcase some of our favorite episodes, like today's. Our podcast host and president is Richard E. Hyman, who has a lot of experience with our oceans. Today's guest speaker is Ellen Quilarts, a freelance wildlife photographer who works both underwater and on land, more particularly under the ice. Ellen uses her amazing images and her voice to advocate for wild animals for the protection of the environments in which they live. Today's talk covers a wide array of topics, including Ellen's life journey, how she actually overcame a fear of water, what it was like to get the bends, or decompression sickness, why she likes exploring on and under the ice, and what she's doing to curate this year's United Nations World Oceans Day Photography Contest. Thank you, and remember, anyone can be an ocean ambassador. Let's get into it. So, hello everyone. My name is Richard Hyman. I'm the president of Future Frogmen. We are a nonprofit, and uh, our mission is to foster ocean ambassadors and future leaders. We hope you'll check out our website, futurefrogmen.org, and subscribe and also follow us on social media. Today we have Miss Ellen Coilarts with us, and uh, it's such a pleasure for me to, to welcome Ellen. I met Ellen a year ago at the Explorers Club, almost a year ago uh, during World Oceans Week. And uh, it was interesting because uh, I popped into the back of the room. We had been on a break and I, d I heard somebody speaking in the main room. I went back to retrieve a notebook and I did not want to go in that front door and interrupt whoever was speaking. So I came in the back and there was Ellen speaking to an audience. And uh, I was so impressed by Ellen's presentation, her words and her wonderful photography, uh, but her stories of adventure and her personal story is uh, so fascinating. And I, I even have learned more in preparation for today's call about uh, Ellen. Uh, but Ellen is, uh, one thing we're gonna talk about today is Ellen is curating the photography competition for this year's UN World Oceans Day, which is June 8th. So uh, I look forward to Ellen telling us about what she's doing there. And uh, uh, that's part of the reason we're doing this call to help the United Nations World Oceans Day and uh, the Friends of the United Nations World Oceans Day. I recently uh, heard Ellen on uh, a wonderful uh, webinar she did on a uh, with a for a lady named Chantel, and it's called Diver Medic. And among the places you can find it is on uh, Facebook. It, it'll give you additional insights into Ellen, and uh, you'll see some of her photography there, which is just amazing. 
Uh, and I learned some things there that uh, Ellen actually uh, ha has or had or has still uh, a, a health issue. And that's why it was uh, uh, fitting for Diver Medic uh, for her to be speaking with them, as well as some of the mental things that go along with uh, being, a, being a, a safe and professional diver. You really have to have your act together and uh, be of sound mind, um, which uh, we'll uh, ask Ellen about that today as well. Ellen talks about some things that really resonate with me and with what we're doing at Future Frogmen, communication. Like today, this is a form of communication. We try to bring stories to, to you, our listeners. And uh, we use video, audio, and uh, writing to do that, all for the good of the ocean. We try to inspire people to, uh, to better understand the ocean and to protect it. Uh, Ellen talks about being part of a team, and we have a great team of uh, volunteers and interns at uh, Future Frogmen, and we, we welcome people of all ages and all backgrounds. We're an interdisciplinary organization, so uh, we welcome that, and uh, Ellen's comments about being part of a team are, are so important when you're on expedition, and uh, that really resonated. And, and Ellen also talked about don't let anybody tell you what you can or cannot do. Uh, that is so important and it takes a lot of courage and uh, experience. Future Frogman is, is born out of mentoring and that, I think that is one of the things we try to, try to do at Future Frogman is to uh, give people the courage like Ellen has and uh, go for it. Just say yes to adventure and whatever your passion might be. And you may not know what your passion is, it may be still developing. Um, and then finally, age. Age doesn't matter. Uh, it's, uh, it's all relative, but uh, people of all ages uh, go out and uh, pursue that adventure and what inspires you in life. So I, I went to Ellen's website, and uh, Ellen's very modest on her website. She doesn't really show many, if any, of her real awards and so forth. She does talk about her, her story and share some photographs. So uh, ellencoilarts.com, uh, C-U-Y-L-A-E-R-T-S.com, ellencoilarts.com. But Ellen is, uh, she's an award-winning freelance photographer underwater as well as on land and also on ice, Ellen, right? <laughs> as you photograph seals and uh, polar bears and so forth atop the ice in some of the harshest climates in the world. Ellen seems to gravitate towards uh, cold water, uh, which fascinates me, um, but that takes a special, uh, a special person. And I, I know one of the reasons she must do it is because of the creatures she finds there and her, her affection for them. She's a, a fellow of Explorers Club International. She's a member of the Flag and Honors Committee at the Explorers Club. She's an inductee to the World, to the Women's Divers Hall of Fame. Ellen has a master's in history and education and, and also a professional career in uh, information technology before she became a diver, I believe that was. So uh, Ellen's from Belgium, uh, but she lives in Grand Cayman of all places, which is a pretty nice place to live, I'd say. So uh, one of the things Ellen also uh, said uh, recently in the presentation I saw is that she gets to hang out with cool people. 
And uh, we're, we're really pleased to have you with us today, Ellen, because we get to hang out with you, a cool person today. So, so with that, Ellen, um, welcome. Thank you, Richard, again. <laughs> and uh, yes, Ellen uh, was gracious enough to do a conversation with us last summer and uh, with, with one of our interns, and it's great to have you back. Ellen, could you tell us, uh, let's start at the beginning and uh, tell us about your, uh, your, your youth and uh, what brought you to uh, this time and place? Well, I grew up in Belgium, um, actually close to Antwerp, which is a beautiful city full of history. Um, I, but it was a city, so, but I did go a lot to the countryside because my parents in the weekends, they worked there. And I was actually enjoying just being free in, in nature and between being young and without any worries and, and having a professional life, I lost being in touch with nature a bit um, because yeah, you get busy. And it was only when I had children that um, they actually drew me back into nature because they were very interested in, in wildlife and in animals in um, different environments. And I, I started to show more interest again and I started to research a lot about animal behavior again. And um, um, well, this is really in short because if you want the whole story, you have to watch Epiphany. Um, but um, actually my Kids are very smart. They're now adults. Um, they're very smart. They have high functioning autism and they, um, they were not happy in school. So I took them out of school while still living in Belgium. And I started homeschooling them myself. And it, it was a bit of a, a gap between our little bubble as a family, having different social rules and um, because there's a, a few things you have to consider when you have a family with people that have autism. Um, the gap between social life, which is normally accepted in Belgium, and our life was getting too big and we were not happy, so we decided to go to another place and we ended up in, in the Cayman Islands because before relocating, we went on a few holidays and we realized snorkeling, so being underwater together with children was actually something we could do as a family and we all enjoyed um, so it was uh, decided we would move to a place with nice blue water and, and living close by the sea because it always made me happy and calm and we ended up in, in Grand Cayman and once we were here this whole family life and the and structure of your days became a slower pace so I could do the teaching of the children and then I had a bit more time for myself because I have no social obligations anymore and I picked up diving and photography because the diving well it was evident when you live so close you have to give it a chance and the photography was something I always wanted to do but when I was young and I had to choose um, what I was going to study it was still a very expensive study and it was days of digital photography and um, not digital, like the old-fashioned photography, and I couldn't afford it. So I um, applied for a scholarship and I studied history, which was my second passion. 
And once I went to diving and photography, uh, yeah, uh, it just all came together. It's, I only started diving when I was 41. So it, it's a late calling, but my love for animals and, and nature and the urge to help others, because I've always been a caring person. I was always in school, the one coming up for the people that got bullied. Uh, I was always trying to protect the weak. And yeah, it, it really came together and, and getting better in photography made my voice grow louder to protect a certain environments, habitats, um, sharks, sanctuaries. Um, it helped me to, to be where I am now. Yeah, it's fascinating. And if I'm not mistaken, you, at one point in your life, you were actually um, uncomfortable with water. Is that correct? Yes. Um, I, I love water. I've always loved water. And in some weekends, so I'm, Belgium is very small country actually and for everybody to get to the coast it's an hour or an hour and a half drive so my parents took us in during the holidays we didn't travel I, I only took a, a plane when I was 18 that was my first um, plane I took it was to India but <laughs> so it was a good um, baptism or how do you call it um, we went to the coastal site and that's where the holidays were spent and the, the sea always had something calming, but the, the North Sea in Belgium, it's a dark sea and we have a lot of rain, so it's not the most appealing. But I did went in, of course, my mom, she always was afraid of water. So it, it does go a bit like, don't go too far. Oh, you can't go swimming too far. You have to be able to stand. And then there was no visibility. So, um, but I did like it. I liked to jump in the waves. I liked to just swim in the waves. I had a good time. There was a little scare when um, I lost the little boat um, and I saw what elements could do. So one time you see something and then before you know it, it's gone and you can't find it again. And that's how strong the elements were. So I was thinking I was afraid of water, but it's more, I now know it's more of a being in awe or having a respect for the elements. Um, yeah, so water has always been important in my life because I really loved it, but I thought I was afraid, which I know now I'm not. But my first dive um, here in Cayman, I came up and I just told um, the persons that were with me, I said, I don't like this. I'm so happy to be back at the surface because I really don't like this. Um, I'm just gonna keep the snorkeling. And then a friend of mine told me, just get your own gear. And, and you will be more comfortable. And then I realized I, I didn't have the knowledge, not enough knowledge after an open water to deal with all these things that can go wrong. And probably it's um, because I'm a historian, I would like to do research and I like to know where everything comes from and, and I like to look for connections. And I realized knowing more about diving, um, you also realize more of the dangers. So I was not never, behaving like a tourist jumping on a boat and just pretend oh we go for a happy snappy dive i realized going underwater there's certain dangers not only about equipment but also about animal behavior so i did my research and i um i kept studying um and then yeah i had like good dives for 
about 18 months and then I got bent really badly and it was not because I did something wrong it was because I had some health issues I was not aware of but um, it did give me a good uh, scare because you realize even on a very shallow dive it was 45 feet 15 meter for 45 minutes and um, I was so bad that I couldn't use my brain properly. It was a type two um, bent, so DCI. Couldn't use my brain. I got a bit um, issues with my right arm. It got, um, I couldn't use it very well. And still sometimes when it, I get tired and I do macrophotography, I still have issues with my arm. So it's, um, it's a scary thing that can happen to me. And, um, I went back to diving, but then I realized I had health issues ever, ever since that dive. And I just quit diving for a few years and I concentrated on extreme snorkeling. I was trying to find a way that I could make a difference for the things I cared about. So I choose subjects that usually don't get enough attention because it's harder to get to. And um, yeah, I, I, I reinvented myself and I reinvented the place I could, um, yeah, that I could fill in, in this underwater ambassadorship or protection for the animals and, and habitats and environment. And that's what happened. And then two years ago, I went back to diving um, and I became a, even a tech diver, a, a cave diver for cave. So life is full of surprises and now i'm 50 so in 10 years a lot of things can happen um but i think it's important to follow your passion and yeah nobody can say that you can't do anything if you use your brain and you're very cautious about everything and and you follow also what you feel how you react to things and you get good follow-up because I have a, a medical every six months. I do stress tests regularly because I have a heart issue. So that's the health issue we're talking about. I, I'm just very aware of everything. And when something doesn't feel right, I do, do the dive. But it's not just about diving. It's also about if I'm on an expedition in the cold and it's a land expedition, I also am very aware about protection and um, doing like no crazy stuff. And, and, and not doing the crazy stuff, maybe I have to explain that a bit more. It's also, to me, very important for the animals. Because if I do something that I don't think about and it brings an animal in danger and something would happen to the animal, I would only blame myself. And um, I think as somebody that wants to protect certain environments, you have to practice what you preach. And... Um, and be in control at all times. That's one of the things that stuck with me from your uh, presentation at the Explorers Club. You told a story about, um, I, I want to say it was a polar bear, I'm not certain, um, yeah. but you, you showed patience and there, there was potential danger to you, but there was also potential disruption to the, to the animal you were studying and, and you, you backed off and you, uh, you basically quit for the day and went back the next day. Yeah, because yeah. it doesn't matter. A picture is worth nothing if you do damage. Um, um, 
I would just not be able, and, and I see it happening all the time. I see it on a small scale happening where I live, um, Grand Cayman. It's a diverse paradise, but it's also one of those places where a lot of um, people from abroad just visit once a year and then they go diving. And they also have a camera and they want to come home with beautiful images. But the pressure uh, on time and the, the very few occasions they have to go in the water becomes so big to them. Even if they don't do anything with the images, they just have this one goal. This trip, I want to see this animal or that critter and I want the perfect picture because I, I, I look up to other photographers and I want to be on the same level. And then things go um, wrong because they, first for themselves, so they don't check their buoyancy. We have wall dives here, which is pretty, um, you have to be in control. And I see dive masters and dive guides endangering themselves because people have cameras in their hands and they only dive once a year. And then they also, I see the damage they do to the coral and, and sponges and, and and it's just, it doesn't feel right to me. Um, I do speak up uh, when I see something goes wrong and I'm not the most light maybe <laughs> between recreational divers sometimes, but I don't care because this is not about ego. This is about, um, we're a team. We have to take care of the ocean that gives us so much and, and, to, and we have to give back and we have to protect this, this gem. Um, I'm, I'm not okay anymore being silent about those things. And I, I see around the world, um, photographers don't have the best reputation and even divers don't always have the best reputation. And the only way we can change that is to be more aware and to be better, to be the better version of ourselves. And if you pretend to love the ocean, just love it then with all your heart and all your soul and do the right thing. Yeah, and even though it seems like common sense, yeah, for some people it, it isn't, or 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 they're just they don't care. Uh, I I respect you for speaking up because it's certainly not always comfortable. No, and it's sad because you think that people um, using the ocean for their pleasure would be totally immersed, having blue heart and soul. But it is not like that. So how long can you not speak up? Um, we tried that. It doesn't work. The oceans really need our help. We have huge pollution issues. Um, climate change is not happening. The acidification. So if we all stay silent, then we're part of the problem. And that's the reason I, I speak about it now in my talks and I speak about it at the United Nations. And other yeah. Places. And some, some of it, some of it's education. Some people just don't know better and they're receptive and then other people may not care, but you have to keep, keep doing it. I, I was in uh, Grand Cayman a number of years ago and uh, on business and we went, uh, we just went snorkeling actually. We, I, I didn't have enough time to go off a wall, uh, particularly if we were going to go deep because of the, uh, the flight home. I needed time before I could fly home on a deep dive, but uh, I was depressed in the shallow water. It, it was all bleached. You know, some of the people that were with me were impressed because they saw a fish or two, and I was, I was, I, I was shocked 
at, at the bleaching in the shallower waters. Um, Very curious. Um, so we, we, as all over the world, we're in a lockdown, so we're not supposed to use the ocean. It's big fines here, like $1,000 to $2,000, and I totally understand it. We, we, um, we're fighting this pandemic as we should, but I'm very curious to go back and to see what this um, timeout has done for the oceans. And um, because we have been asking resilience from every critter in the ocean. And I'm really, yeah, I'm really looking forward to see um, our resilience, how we are dealing now with this staying at home thing, but how it helps healing the oceans. So I, I try to see the silver linings and um, I, um, I can't wait to go back and document the changes, the positive changes, because there has have to be. We see sharks. Well, the police helicopter that's patrolling, patrolling. They see the sharks coming in closer uh, on places they've never seen before. So those things are really they they make my day. Yeah. No, that's uh, that that's really a wonderful thing that's happening around the world on land as as well. Yeah. Um, although it's in a way it's sad when the animals are coming into the cities and so forth, but they're they're kind of reclaiming their prior territories uh, on land and underwater. Now, now in the in the states, most if not all the beaches are closed. Uh, you're prevented from going in the water there because yes. of beach activity, or or what is the reason? Yeah, so the beaches are closed. We're on a soft curfew during the day, which means we can go out for groceries, but only on your name day and then during a lot of times. Um, and then during the evenings we have and night we have hard curfews. So we are not supposed to be on any beach. Even if you live at the beach, you're not supposed to cross or actually be at the waterline. So I can't even walk my doggy. <laughs> so he's very depressed now because he's a bit older and he has um, some issues, uh, but he has to yeah, ju just use the backyard. Oh. Yeah. But, and it's also just, um, if you go in the ocean and something happens, also that people can't go fishing, not swimming in the ocean, because if something happens, it's a drag on the healthcare system, which I totally understand. Yeah, that that's, uh probably the bottom line there the yeah. on healthcare if there's a diving accident or whatever yeah it's again a team effort we're yeah. all together so yeah now earlier you were talking about uh, when you got bent yes. now, was that 45 feet or 45 meters 45 feet yeah meters very shallow yeah it's amazing yeah um, and, and i still um when i first talked about it when it happened and I went back to dive and I was on the boat, I got judged the whole time. So people just say, oh, what did you do wrong? What did you do wrong? I didn't do anything wrong. And then um, also when I dive here, I live here. So I think because of the heat, this is um, tropical, your blood thins. So I'm cold more quick than other people and I dive in a five to seven mil wetsuit when I'm um, diving here and I always have to um, explain myself because tourists don't understand and I learned that I don't have to explain but the reason why I kept studying or I went back to diving and study so much is because now I can give them a scientific answer <laughs> if I get questioned like this is the reason why and um because that's an issue. It seems like everywhere you go, you're being 
questions. Uh, the more you know, the more you can answer. Can you uh, tell our listeners uh, what it means to be bent? And when you say DCI, what do you mean by that? I, yeah, so um, sometimes when you go diving and you um, come up too quickly, you, um, your body hasn't resolved, uh, I mean, very simple, didn't resolve the bubbles yet and they can get stuck. And they call it the bends because if they get stuck in your joints, then um, you, you really have pain there and you probably bend over by your pain. But um, it's um, in order to resolve those bubbles, that's why you come up slowly and you do your safety steps to, for the body to be able to dissolve the bubbles when they're still under pressure and smaller. So um, I have a type two, which means um, they hit my central nervous system and it's a different bend. I didn't have pain. I just was totally out of it. Uh, so, but before I realized, so I was so out of it that I didn't realize I was bent. I just felt really bad. And I just came back from Europe, but there's a lot of research about not going to dive before you are on a plane. There's not so much research when you get back from a, a long haul trip and jet lag and to get in the water. So I, I was, um, I was just back from a, um, a trip to Belgium, came back to Grand Cayman. I waited a day and then went diving. So I, I didn't really do anything wrong, but coming up from the dive, I was very tired and I just blamed it on a jet lag. So the next day I went diving again and I was even more tired. And it was for a project about something, yeah, it was conservation. So the third day I told Michael, I said, I can't go diving because I don't feel well. I'm not at it. And those would be um, wall dives. So I said, I'm not concentrating. The day before I was on a, on a shark dive, it was not too deep. I think the day after, so, but I was bent already because I felt really bad, but I didn't realize it. Um, the day after I went on a shark dive, 65 feet or something. And I, um, I made a mistake with my buoyancy at the surface. And to, for me to make a mistake like that, it was really, my brain was just not functioning well. And that scared me so much that I said the third day, um, I'm not going to dive, I really feel bad. It took me five days to actually beg Michael to bring me to a hospital because I couldn't get on the stairs anymore to my bed. I couldn't walk. I couldn't walk a line. When we finally got to the hospital and I got oxygen, um, which helps with dissolving bubbles if they're still in your body, I was crying. I was so relieved. And then immediately they put me in the chamber, so a hyperbaric chamber. But I was so exhausted that I had a hard time breathing. And we, it's, it's a very small chamber here in the Cayman Islands. Um, we were two divers in it and then a person helping you. So I really, um, normally they, they can free flow it a bit more <laughs> in oxygen, but I really had to suck it out. In, in, it's 20 minutes you're on oxygen and then you have a little break. And it was so exhausting. I was, um, I was not doing well. But, and I was in the chamber for a total of two times for five and a half hours, which um, 
with this COVID, it, it comes back a little bit because you hear people being on ventilators and people being on oxygen. And I know how tiring it is. If you have to do that for three times, just five and a half hours, it's nothing compared with what is happening now. People in hospital for a week, two weeks have to do it um, when they're not in, in, in an inducted coma. So um, it was horrible. And then coming back home and not, so they said, yeah, you should be fine, but it's gonna take a while for things to come back and we we're gonna monitor you. But even cooking, like a simple act of cooking, what I'm so used to, the process of putting something in a pan, uh, butter and putting the, the, the gas on and stuff, I couldn't remember the steps to do it. So it was the realization that everything, you have to let go of everything because you have to start all over again. It was very hard for me because I was in control the whole time before I was in control um, with my children and, and teaching them and, and with my own life and I was so organized and suddenly I became so chaotic and um, it's, it, it makes you very humble and then you get you go back to the doctor and after six weeks after six weeks I got the okay yes you're okay you can go diving and on my first dive it was um, uh, Alex Mustard what was with us the, the um, amazing photographer Dr. Alex Mustard. So we go on a dive and I have a macro setup. So just to not have to move a lot. So no wide angle photography, just macro. I was supposed to be a very easy dive. And I went to take a picture and my arm just started shaking and I couldn't finish that dive. And it's like, oh, what is going on? <laughs> it's very, because it's, it's an enemy you don't know. And, and there's damage you can't see. And that's the scary thing about getting an undeserved bend. Because if you get bent when you go really deep and you go up and, and you know you didn't do your safety stops or you went too deep and you didn't do them long enough, you know something can happen and oh yeah, okay. People get skin bends here on the, on the, on the wall dives a lot because they, they bounce up and down a lot because they see something and then they go to the next thing. But then you know what you did wrong. And it's, I think it's easier I've known people in the water here, they got bent like 10 times, 15 times, and they still go back because they know what they did wrong. They sit it out and they go back. To me, it's, uh, like it's, it's playing with your life a bit because there's one day where you can't go back or something happens, something worse happens. Yeah, yeah, you definitely, that bubble goes to your brain or your heart. Yeah. And, yeah. and then it's, it's, it's game over. Yeah. And that's also why, um, sorry to interrupt, but going back to diving, I was, so within years of extreme snorkeling, I got um, diagnosed with a PFO, which is a, um, a little hole in the heart. And um, everybody has it when they get born, but then it, it, it seals. And I also have a valve that doesn't work well. So I realized, that I was just too exhausted on a dive. So I re-taught myself well, with an instructor to dive a different way, less exhaustion, and now I recognize it better. So um, yeah, it's very, it was very humbling. Yeah, funny, it's not a funny subject, but a funny story sort of uh, I'll share with you is we were in Martinique when I was with Jacques Cousteau and 
I was on a dive with a, a, a wonderful diver named Bernard Delamotte. And after the dive, Bernard had some pain in his shoulder. <clears throat> and for the first time ever, in my experience, he went into the chamber. We had a two-man decompression chamber, which for our listeners, takes you artificially takes you down to a depth and then you can come back up in a in a scientific fashion to decompress and get those bubbles out of your bloodstream. And uh, it turned out it was a false alarm. Bernard was fine, but you know, we we took the precaution. And uh, even though I was on the dive with him, I had no symptoms, so I did not go in with him. He went into the chamber by himself and he was in there pretty much all night. But he went in with a, a jug of wine. <laughs> so, yeah, totally against protocol, I'm sure. But that was the kind of the way, way we, we did things at, at times on the ship. Yeah. But, uh, well, I'm glad you're okay, Ellen. Um, it, it sounds like you still have a little bit of residual um, uh, symptoms or at least something you need to be attentive of, be aware of. And I think as long as I'm attentive, I can handle it, but I wouldn't be afraid to call a dive or not go diving when I don't feel well. Yeah. yeah. Now, with all that, it fascinates me that you love cold water. Can you, can you explain that to us? Um, I think when I got bent and, and didn't feel well after that and became more a snorkeler as the first I went to Hawaii and I really loved being at, in this snorkeling zone with dolphins, bigger animals. Um, I went to the belugas in Churchill, which was cold. The reason that I love the cold is actually maybe because I had to use my brain. So I was just having a few awards when I got bent and my voice was a bit louder in the conservation area. And I was thinking, how can I make a difference? You can't make a difference with doing the same thing everybody does, which is uh, blue, <laughs> tropical water that everybody loves to be in. So I went to um, Churchill, which was a bit colder, and I actually, I loved it. The darkness, the, um, it's a different mindset. So you have to think more as an animal instead of um, observe behavior, which you can see. Um, when you're in blue water, you can um, spend a few dives observing your subject. You do your research at home and then you see how, how they are in the water. But when you're in cold, dark water, you can't really observe a lot because you can't see it if they don't come close. So you have to do a lot more research. You have to observe also from the uh, surface. And then you have to try to think like the animals. And I think that's what I like because you have to work harder to establish this connection where you can make an image, where you can work on an image. And um, to me, it's, it's been a very rewarding journey because it made me aware that I was a good observer in the things I did with my children. Uh, so I mentioned the autism and some people say, oh, you're always mentioning autism. Yes, because it's part of my family. It's part of my life for so many years. It doesn't go away. I'm not saying um, they have issues. I'm just saying it's a part of their being. They're different, but they're, they're amazing. And, and, and 
it's not because you don't see something that it's not there. So, but I have to mention it because when they were little, there were little things that happened during the day that I had to be aware of because they could have consequences the same day, a day later, a week later, or a month later. So if I didn't observe, I couldn't analyze the situation and I couldn't help it. I couldn't be actually positively constructive in a solution. My children drawing me back to nature and having the experience with them and being a good observer really helped me with the animals. So this whole um, late in life mission and then getting bent and then going to extreme environments, it was actually all meant to be, I now think, because it's something I believe I'm really good at. Um, I don't like to praise myself, but that's where I made the difference. And some people say, oh, I go to those destinations because of the images I saw, because of the stories you told. I'm interested. I didn't know about them. And that's actually what gives me a lot of um, satisfaction or make it not satisfaction personally, but like I have a cause, I'm following a cause or I have a goal. It's my life goal to maybe contribute in that way and I, I do love the cold because that's where I could make the difference and yeah. I went back and more cold and more cold <laughs> yeah. yeah well that, that that makes perfect sense now that you've explained it I, I can visualize you with the polar bears and the seals yeah it's like you're in this void it's a solitude because there's you have the arctic and you have antarctica antarctica if you know the places, you have a zillion penguins and you have lots of wildlife. But the Arctic is much harder to get the encounters. And it's part of getting in the zone, being prepared the whole time. And then when something happens and you can capture it, it really, um, yeah, it, it's really a nice feeling. And, and you know why you're in that cold environment, mm. even in the water just waiting, waiting until everything comes together. And then you have that one image and you say, yeah, okay, that's why I do it. Yeah, um, now, and you talk about preparation. There, there's a lot of preparation in that environment. It, yes. Can you, can you get, bring a little bit of that to light for us as far as the logistics and the gear and, and maybe the waiting? Yeah, for example, um, belugas. It, we all know belugas. Some people know them from um, Aquaria, which is a different story. So I, I don't like um, see marine mammals in Aquaria because of the sounds and it's just cruel, it's torture. But I don't want to like, judge anybody. Um, the reason I went to belugas was because I wanted to see them wild and free. And I saw a lot of photographers going to Russia, to the White Sea, I think. And I saw those images with eyes and I was really like, oh, wow, this is beautiful. But then I found out it's in Sipen. So I was like, no, that's not wild and free. Uh, so I've found out how do they live? They are Arctic whales. They, um, they, most of their time is in dark, under the eyes in darkness. And I found this place in Churchill. Churchill, which is up in Canada at Hudson Bay, where every summer you have 60,000 beluga whales coming there because they um, like to have their young there. 
uh, in the warm waters, warmer waters, they feed on spawning capelin and they shed their winter skin. So summer, which is actually in Churchill only July and August. <laughs> so that's the logistic um, exercise you make. When can I see those animals there, which is July, August? How do I get there? Um, you can get there by, for me, it was from Grand Cayman, so it's a few flights until Winnipeg, and then you actually have to rely on um, an Inuit company. Uh, it was Calm Air. And then you are confronted with um, the things I want to take as a photographer. I want to take my camera gear and I want to take my dive gear, well, my, my smoking gear. But my needs are not important because it's the community needs that are important. So there's only so many planes going there and that community needs um, medication or other things, uh, packages people are waiting for. So then logistic wise, they tell you, you can only take one bag. And the rest of the bags you have to send by cargo. And we don't know if they will arrive because it depends on what the community needs. So you have to let go of all expectations. You just take the chance, you go there, you can prepare yourself as much as needed, but you don't know if everything will arrive. And it, it is, um, again, it's very humbling. So you prepare yourself, you get there. My first time in Churchill, my um, dive gear didn't arrive so my exposure um, suit my dry suit didn't arrive so I went um, last minute when we went to the belugas the first evening I went in a wetsuit so it was doubling up and just being flexible and I was happy I didn't have my camera but I just wanted to um, observe and have the experience because it's not just about the picture it's about the whole immersion of that experience so I didn't make an issue out of it. I just was very grateful to be there. And then the next day, my dry suit did arrive. I, I considered myself lucky. And two days after my camera gear did arrive, so I considered myself lucky. But that whole first trip, I was not able to take a picture because the conditions were very bad. Visibility was zero. And then the fog came in and we couldn't even get on Hudson Bay anymore because it was just not safe. Um, so what did I do? Did I whine about it? No, it's, it's, a, it's not the, the most easy trip. You have to prepare yourself and, and get all everything together. But I just decided I would go back the next year and try again. And, um, and, and I know it's when you come home with no images, it, sometimes you wonder, oh, should I do it? But yeah, because it's a passion. I wanted to go back and I thought about more about how can I deal with bad conditions the, the, the conditions i saw maybe i should approach the animals differently maybe i should be more um playful in the water and make them interested in me and make them come to me and going back the next year dealing again with the luggage issues and um and um and weather issues the moments i had in the water Again, there was not a lot of visibility and there was a lot of thermoclines that year, a lot of rain coming down, runoff from the rivers, but I got them interested in me and the animals came to me and I got the images I, I could only dream of. Um, and I'm happy I went back because two years later, you were not allowed anymore to go in the water with the belugas there. So should I have um, dealt with 
disappointment and saying, oh no, it's just not worth it now. I want to go to uh, an easy destination and come home with images. I might have missed that opportunity to go. So I'm a bit of a, a, a yes woman. When, when I think, can I do it? Yes, just go. <laughs> Um, because everything you postpone, there's no given that it's going to happen again or that it can happen again. Yeah, that's a great, a great message. Uh, communicate that as well. We try to communicate that, that if you're given an opportunity, use common sense, but try to say yes, because yes. you may never have that opportunity again. And, and it could change your life. And yeah. You went back and I dare say that second visit changed your life. Yeah. All, all the other changes you've had, that also changed your life, right? And, and the, the weird thing about that trip is that um, the fog came on Hudson Bay. So it was a big layer of fog. And I was still in that fog <laughs> attempt to see this beluga. Or just, but I was enjoying hearing them because they are the canaries of the sea. They make these very high-pitched noises. And suddenly my guide on, on the Zodiac, I heard, heard her and she said, come out of the water now, polar bear. So I had a land camera in the, the Zodiac and I was just pulling myself up on the, rope. I, on the rope. I couldn't see the Zodiac, so I was really pulling as if my life depended on it, maybe it was. But I pulled up, got onto the Zodiac, took my land camera and the polar bear was so close, so I took a shot of a polar bear in these misty waters of Hudson Bay. And because I, um, I posted that picture later on Facebook, just with the story, I went to Churchill, didn't get the images I wanted, but this was quite the experience. And an editor of um, the 50 Fathoms Blancpain editions, um, the Blancpain does a lot of um, ocean commitment um, projects, the editor saw that image of that polar bear, which really was not a great image, but he saw it and he contacted me and I became part of this uh, 50 Fathoms Blancpain project, which was a big honor, but that's because of that image. So everything has a reason, I think. Because through Blancpain, I got involved in the United Nations um, World Oceans Day. So again, everything's connected. <laughs> yeah, and... and uh... Boy, we're going to have to have you come back, Alan, to talk about so many of the other locations and other creatures, which I know you also love. But I think that's a perfect segue. You were just talking about the UN for you to tell us about the uh, photography competition. Yeah, so the first two years when I saw that competition, I think it started in 2013. Yeah, it's a seventh um, edition now. I entered into the competition because I liked the vibes of the competition. It wasn't about finding the best photographer. It wasn't just about underwater images. It was about the oceans. So I entered the competition with two images and um, in both categories I ended first. The next year I entered again and I was first in one category and second in another and um, I, was, I really loved the vibes. It was a small competition but the, there was a soul in it. And then through, um, I was in New York and went to a reception given by Blancpain. Um, there was a talk um, that friends of mine gave, Michelle and Howard Hall, um, because they got the Hans Hasse Award. And they gave a talk in the Blancpain boutique on uh, Fifth Avenue. 
And I went there and I got introduced to the person that actually congratulated me from the United Nations, who did, which is um, Francois Bayer. I think you know him too. And we talked about the oceans in the Blancpain Boutique. And we talked and talked and talked, and we were really at the same um, golf length, if, if, if it's something that people use in, in, in English. So we connected immediately and he, he, he said, well, you're passionate about the oceans and, um, and you, you've, com you've entered the competitions for so many times. Why don't you not enter this year and just um, come to New York on World Oceans Day and, and talk about photography during the reception for United Nations World Oceans Day, which is, which is every year at the 8th of June. So me being yes woman, I said, yes, of course I will do that. Are you okay to talk for a big audience? I said, yes, <laughs> I will do that. Okay, that's easy because then I don't have to do it. And that's actually how I rolled into working with them. And um, the next year, I, because they have a lot to think about, it's the Division of Ocean Affairs and Law of the Sea. So they are really busy. So I helped them with the photo competition. I helped them with the judges. I found some, I judges that are again with the same attitude and same ethos and um, I took care of um, handling the, the um, checking the images if there were um, the photographers and I gave them and that was probably the biggest honor of my life that year there was an ocean conference in New York during the week of um, World Oceans Day uh, so there were a lot of head of states in um, the Ocean Conference and I was allowed in the General Assembly to talk about the oceans and what they mean for photographers and how we can make a difference with our images and also filmmakers and I could announce the winners there in that General Assembly and it was just um, mind-blowing. First that I could do it and be the voice of photographers doing such a amazing event, but also that I got the trust of um, Francois, and I really think he's, um, he's one of my closest friends now. We don't see each other a lot, but we are really fighting in a positive way for the same cause, and I really love that. And in, meanwhile, those, um, the competition became bigger and bigger, and this year we just, uh, the deadline was the 3rd of May, and we have doubled the entries that, uh, from last year and uh, the quality of images is very high. So the judges are now doing the judging and they have a hard time, which is good because it keeps them busy during these days. Yeah. And, and your role, you are I'm, Yes, I'm curating. And also this year was a bit more challenging, I think, because um, we also, we, we have images where we show what's going wrong in the oceans. But this year, hope is also important. And um, we also wanted to see rejuvenation. So what is actually happening now? How are the, how can, can we show the resilience of the ocean? Um, so we added a few categories. It's always um, nice to think about those things and brainstorm with like-minded people. This year, Oceanic Global, like last year, is doing the, is a strategic partner for the day. And we, we have a great team. 
and them being challenged with not having the event actually in New York that day, but making a virtual event is also a challenge that I think they, they're actually doing a great job uh, getting people involved and making it wider and um, yeah. So that's my role, but actually anything they ask me to help them with, I just do it because I'm, I'm so honored that first they trust me and second of all that I can contribute in a positive way. Yeah, well, congratulations on that. That's uh, a wonderful multi-year story with the yeah. photography competition and, and your roles. Um, so that's, that's awesome. And they're a great bunch of people. I've, I've been enjoying getting to know them this year and we're, uh, we're participating in several ways. So uh, it's, it's great to be involved. And I, I forgot to mention that this year also, um, because it's, it's a multi-year thing and I'm always thinking what I can contribute. And this year we have a charter. So all participants had to read the charter and agree to it. And it's actually, I don't know if you can see it, but it's 14 commitments that every photographer has to comply with. And it goes from silly things like um, normally in guidelines or rules for competitions, it is that you can't harass wildlife and you can't um, uh, pick a nudie brand up and put it somewhere else. But those are like very, um, those things are very well integrated in other competitions. But um, we made 14 commitments and, and one of them is like, I will work locally if applicable and contribute time to document and uh, tell stories in support of local conservation initiatives. And I'm so happy we, we have these commitments, certainly this year, because suddenly this world is in a lockdown. You can't travel without, it's, it's not gonna be easy at this point. So, so we have to reinvent ourselves as image makers, um, to work with what we have, but always, and it's about water, so it doesn't matter if you live close by sea, it's all about the importance of water because it's all connected to the oceans. So in, in, in short, I'm just happy we make people more think about their role in the ocean and be an ocean person. Also, if you go outside not to use um, like single-use plastic, um, bring your, um, water container, bring your uh, mug, your coffee mug, like all those things, participants had to sign it. That it's not just a empty promise, but that you really think about it. And if I see those things not complied with, I can say, well, you signed this charter, so can you please do a bit more of <laughs> an effort? Not that I want to raise my finger also, it's also one of the commitments is also if you see things going wrong, start a dialogue, but do it in a polite way. What I see sometimes on social media is just, um, oh, they do it differently, so I'm not, I'm just gonna use cursing and, 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 and not be open to any dialogue. But I think being polite and kind is very important to have a dialogue because otherwise you don't have a dialogue, you just have a, a rant or event. Um, so those things are also a part of um, World Oceans Day, to be an ocean person and a, a full ocean ambassador in every way you can. Well said. 
Yeah, I, I don't think social media is the platform for uh, debates, if you will. Um, but these other types of forums, even hopefully presentations like this, conversations like this, um, can get people thinking and uh, learning and uh, changing behaviors. You talked about uh, using your voice for conser conservation, and uh, you've, you've given several examples throughout our our conversation today, uh, I think just the images themselves uh, present things that people have never seen and hopefully an appreciation and, and a love to protect them. Uh, Cousteau used to say, uh, protect what you love. And one of, it's really my favorite quote that he would say. But I wanna ask you in closing, how do you feel about the ocean today? You used the word hope a few minutes ago. I'm sure you have hope, but you might also have some dismay. Can you share with us your thoughts? And with that, you also just talked about people doing small things like in the, in the charter, but what can we do? What can listeners do to do their part? I, I, I do sometimes when I enter the oceans, I think, and when I see the beach in front of the house full of plastic, sometimes it's very depressing. But if we don't hang on to hope, then why? And also as an image maker or as an ocean person, you have to um, give hope because not everybody knows the ocean like we do. We're very privileged that we can witness it. But if um, some people living in the city and you would say, well, there's plastic everywhere and that's what it is, why would they even care of doing an effort to be the change you want to see? So um, I have my worries, certainly. I don't, I don't know if it's irreversible, the damage we've done. But every year we win for future generations is a year of hope. Because we don't know what's going to follow in development and, and, and new, new, um, new techniques to, to clean the oceans. Um, so hope is very important to me. Am I positive? I'm, I'm on, the, on the verge. So with people, insiders, um, I would be more open about the things I see. But if I, um, if I have an exhibition in New York, for example, I, my message is full of hope. Yeah. What can we do? I think we have to look at ourselves in the mirror. Um, start with ourselves. Practice what we preach. So when I go to a dive show, um, I always combine a trip. So I will never take a flight just for one thing and then go back home because that's pollution. It's worse. If I can't combine it with several other things, and it's really putting pressure on me too because I, <laughs> I'm like on a schedule the whole time. If I can't combine it, I don't go. And that's a hard decision sometimes, but that's just the way I am. But then I see plastic everywhere. And then I go like, really, we're divers. Um, if, if we can't start with ourselves, who are we? And that's why I'm, a, I'm a, the ADEX ambassador for photography and conservation. ADEX is the Asia dive show. And they, last year they had a plastic free show and it was really impressive. So I think if they can do it, everybody around the world should be able to do it. So I don't wanna see anybody with a single-use cup or a single-use um, bag at a dive show anymore. Start with ourselves. We're ocean people. Um, 
There's no excuse. It's too late for excuses. Do we have to call people out or put pictures <laughs> with, of them on, on, on social media? No, because that's not the way. But have a dialogue in a polite way. I do believe we have to speak up because not speaking up is actually approving what they do. So um, yeah, write organizations about your worries and but not just point out what they do wrong in your opinion, but come with a solution and even make the math. Like this use is gonna cost you so much, but if you do it differently, maybe it's gonna cost you a little bit more, but think about the positive image you will gain, which is a big win. And, and then about um, the damage you prevent, and that's a big win. So we have to communicate differently. I think not pointing fingers, but come up with constructive solutions. Um, that's what we can do, and start with ourselves and look in the mirror every day, and don't be hypocrites. Um, that's what I believe in. <laughs> maybe it's old age. Not old age. I'm not old. I'm fifty, but maybe it's just like not tolerating bullshit anymore. Well said. <laughs> yeah, it's and I, I love your. Uh your strategy and your tip about combining it as well. That makes a lot of sense. And that's hard work because sometimes there's something you really want to go to or you need to go to, but if you make the effort to combine it, uh, it, it does leave, uh, you're still leaving the carbon footprint, but you might be making a more efficient, more impactful trip if you can combine two or three things. And look at us here. So Alex have a virtual is having a virtual live show, and there it's like a whole month. We can do it. We having these talks and, and and even panel discussions virtually. It is possible. We don't always have to come together. Um, I think it's showing us that there's different ways of working, and um, those are the silver linings at this moment. Absolutely, and, and it, it's. Um... In, in, in despite the horrible situation we're in, it's, it's a wonderful thing to connect this way. You're in Cayman. I'm in Connecticut in the U.S. And, and uh, did a conversation with us uh, when you were, I think, were in and Jill in Earth Canada. So, you know, the, the, the power of telecom and technology uh, used in the right way can uh, be beneficial to the planet and beneficial to our ability to communicate. So, Ellen, this, this has been wonderful. I, I, I hope to speak with you again. We could talk easily for another hour or two. So much uh, that, that you've done and I'd like to learn more of. And, and I do hope to see you at some time again in person uh, in New York or elsewhere. But uh, you've actually touched today on three strategic pillars that we use at Future Frogmen. We're focused on climate change, plastic pollution, and species survival. And your wonderful photography of uh, species, which I would encourage everyone to, to check out, check out Ellen's website, ellencoilarts.com, C-U-Y-L-A-E-R-T-S. And, uh, and please check out futurefrogmen.org, subscribe, please, and you'll, learn about other conversations like this that we hold. So Ellen, thank you so much. It's been wonderful to visit with you virtually and uh, I look forward to seeing you again as soon as possible. 
thank you for having me again. And I, I do believe we should do like a, a different conversation. I'm asking you the questions because I want to learn so much about you um, and what, well, your life and, and the future fragment. You do amazing work and the mentorships are absolutely amazing. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, I, we, we could do that sometime. I don't want to say goodbye because it's been so great to be with you again. You enjoy that warm weather down there in Grand Cayman, and uh, we'll enjoy the cool up here in Connecticut, okay? Yeah, just all stay safe. And, yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. All right, Ellen. Thank you so much, and uh, thanks to everyone for joining us today. Everybody, take care. Be safe. Bye bye.